Ed, Ed, Bobed, Banana, Fana, Fofed, Me, My, Momed, Ed. We are live. We are ready. It is... I was singing as filler. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I was that's singing fin- Ed, Ed, Bobed. <laughs> you, were, you were singing the name game. Yeah, Shirley, Shirley, Bo Burley. Banana, Fana, Fofer. Don't and don't call me Shirley. That's what I. Now we're going to talk about this off camera here, but uh, microphone. Yeah, there's going to be a comedy show. It's going to be called Monsters of Mental Health. I'm not kidding. It's going to be I a national it. tour. It's called Monsters of Mental Health, and it's going to be big. It's going to be comedians talking about it's their issues. It's going to be huge. It's, it's already not, huge. Yeah, in they're our talking minds. about their. It is. They're talking <laughs> about their issues. I've done it before, but now, and when you see these comedians, you will. Some of them are not. It's adult. Let me put it that way. Not that you're not an adult, but I'm just saying you might hear things that'll be like, what am I talking, what am I listening to? It's not PG land anymore. It is not. But this episode of Dear Anxiety, first of all, Dear Anxiety, for those of you who don't know already, which is sweeping the country, is the show that talks about how we relate to our thoughts and feelings, our mental health, mental well-being, how we relate to something that we would call emotional fitness, Today, I use the term emotional sustainability. I don't know what that is, but I like the sound of it. At any rate, we don't, you know, we talk about our physical health, not so much about our mental health. And certainly no one that I've seen actually shows you how to practice mental health. What does it look like? Well, we do that. That's what Dear Anxiety is all about. I'm Ed Krasnick, my co-host, my partner, studied applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania with Marty Seligman, the father of applied positive psychology. So she made a study of it, the science of well-being. And then that's not enough, but wait, there's more. She goes on to create an entire world, a company, a universe called GoZen, which teaches kids, parents, families, schools all over the world, resilient skills, anxiety relief through animation and creative play. We're out of time, but thank you for listening. That's, that's it. it. <laughs> no, we don't have any more time. Rini Jane, Rini, you are what I would call a compassionate parent. Oh but, my goodness. But why don't why don't we talk about that because that's what that's what today's episode is all about. It's all about compassionate parenting. Yes, we are going to talk about compassionate parenting, what it is and why it can be so challenging, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was us? Give us some compassion. Yeah. Because we need it. Yes, yeah. you are also a compassionate parent, my friend. Well, thank you for saying so. And I will record that and play it back for my daughter as soon as <laughs> I get home. You have to put it on a loop. Put I do have loop. to put it on a loop because, no, I think she would, uh, you know, I think she would say so, maybe. But I think, you know, when I think about compassion parenting, that idea is what gets in the way of compassionate parenting what is it what does it look like and what it looks like is is somebody who you know respects who who holds the ground puts up the guardrails but allows their child to experience life and to experience their emotions and their thoughts and and figure things out for themselves in their own way, in their own process. And I think that that's very hard to do. Yes, it is. It's it's hard to allow our kids to have the space to be, I think, without jumping in and sort of molding that experience. But, you know, let's talk about what compassionate parenting is. Because I don't think we're coining a term here, but, you know, there are a lot of different parenting styles, right? So there's authoritarian parenting, right? Where authoritarian parents are thought of often as 
real strict disciplinarians. They use a strict style. There's only a little bit of negotiation, if any, and communication usually is a monologue. At, you know, what, this is the thought, at least, behind it. They are considered to be typically less nurturing, but I don't, you know, I don't really know about that. I don't know if they're less nurturing. I feel like all parents, well, most parents really want the best for their kids. So, but there is that that style. There's less flexibility in that style. Mm-hmm. Then there's permissive parenting. I'm sure, you know, we can use the context to figure out like what these things are. But this is kind of the opposite of what we just talked about, where there really aren't limits set into place or rules. And kids are kind of left to their own devices to figure out their issues and how to navigate through their challenges. Communication can be open, but these parents often let their kids decide for themselves rather than really guiding them through. I think, you know what, also when we're putting ourselves in these buckets, we step in, step in and out of buckets all the time, you know, out of categories all the time. So maybe we're a little bit of this and a little bit of that, depending on the situation. There is uninvolved parenting, (laughs) like laissez-faire parenting, where the kids are given a lot of freedom. Maybe this happened to us when we were growing up, Ed, where there were moms going into the workforce and a lot of kids, you know, they called them latchkey kids back then. I don't know what they call them now. Do they use Mm -hmm. that terminology? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So maybe not not uninvolved by choice, but just, you know, not around as much. In any case, now, you know, we have all these different parenting styles. There's helicopter parenting and tiger parenting and lawnmower parenting. And (laughs) there are a lot of different names. I wish they would all unify, right? Because a helicopter and a lawnmower are kind of different things. Can they all be like, I don't know, communication things? Can they all be like vehicles? It would make sense to my brain. Anyway, one's an animal. One's something that you fly with. One's something that you push to cut your grass. Of course. Um, <laughs> maybe you can maybe you can come up with a better naming convention for us so it's not so confusing. Oh, um, yeah. But then there's what we're calling compassionate parenting, mm-hmm. which is really being attuned to your child, stepping into their experience, and trying your best to be their guide, to allow them autonomy, but and to be their guide. Some people know of this as positive parenting, and I think that definitely falls under that umbrella. But anyway, so today we're talking about that because a lot of the parents that listen to this podcast are compassionate parents or adopt that style for most of their parenting. And guess what, Ed? Mm. It's hard. It's hard to do. You know, in today's world, it's hard to be conscious and it's very easy to go unconscious. And most people, uh, all right, I'm not going to say most people anymore. I'd say me, I am used to practicing unconscious. I have the habit of being unconscious. Now, I'm not blaming myself or putting myself down. I'm just saying that over and over again, rather than, you know, rather than being aware and choosing consciousness, I go underground. Now we're back. We're back and we're talking about conscious parenting, uh, compassionate parenting. And I was talking about, you know, being conscious. It's hard. It's hard to, to make those kind of choices what does it mean? What does it look well, like? Well, it definitely, Greeny? when you talk about conscious and unconscious, it absolutely takes more effort to be conscious, right? Our yes. conscious brain becomes, you have to put more effort for it to be conscious. It's the reason that we automate a lot of processes in our life and they become subconscious processes because it's easier to do. It's the thing that happens when you're driving somewhere and you've driven the route so many times that you can literally think about something else and you don't even realize how you got there. Well, you weren't consciously paying attention to how you were driving, putting your foot on 
on the brake, putting it on the gas, turning the wheel, right? Making turns on the road and following all, like, how does your brain do all of that stuff without even quote unquote consciously paying attention? So I think that this idea of consciousness is really important. I think it's the reason, one of the one of the reasons why it can be such a struggle to be a compassionate parent. But I think there's a lot of reasons. In fact, I wrote a few of them down. You're kidding. Do <laughs> no, we need music for this? Yes, for real. I okay. did write some Lee, down. Let's have some music for this. This is Rini writing something down now. First of all, I think that we being compassionate parents naturally suffer from compassion fatigue, right? And so they've actually done research on this idea of compassion fatigue. And I'm going to read you a little bit from a researcher that studies it. So I'm going to read you a little excerpt from Charles Figley, who studies compassion fatigue. We've not been directly exposed to the trauma, but we hear the story told with such intensity, or we hear similar stories so often, or we have the gift and curse of extreme empathy, and we suffer. We feel the feelings of our clients, or children in this case. We experience their fears. We dream their dreams. Eventually, we lose a certain spark of optimism, humor, and hope. We tire. We aren't sick, but we aren't ourselves. And I feel like this so beautifully captures what a lot of parents experience when their kids are anxious and they're extremely compassionate, right? It's also called vicarious traumatization. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Nice. It's like secondary smoking, right? Good God. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. tough. Yeah. You know what's interesting? I read that Mother Teresa, she actually would say to her nuns, that she was working with that she required them to take a year off every four to five years just to allow them to heal from the compassion fatigue because of all of the caregiving work. And what more caregiving work is there than being a parent? Yeah, I, you know, I think we should take a year off is what I think we should take a year off every year. (laughs) Uh, for the rest of our life. I was just talking about this the other day, and that's you do, there is a rhythm of taking space and taking a break. We don't think that we can take a break. Now, if you've got, you know, a two-year-old, you have to be on watch, you know, a lot of the time, but we have to find ways to get help. We have to find ways to get, to take breaks because if you don't, everybody needs a break. There is a, you know, animals in nature, right? They have times when they're not being eaten or being, or chasing down food. We have to find those, you know, those breaks. Absolutely. I think it's really hard to burn the candle at both ends. Is that the saying? You know, I'm not good at saying. That is the saying. Good. Good. Yes. Right on the mic. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um. So, you know, but the thing is, is that, okay, so we're suffering from this fatigue, right? Because we're really invested in what our kids child's experiences. And when their experience is difficult and challenging, we are really intensely feeling that challenge ourselves. But I think it goes deeper than that because we are really attached to the outcome that our child is going to have, whatever that outcome is. I don't just mean a grade, you know, the outcome of an experience. Let's say your child has social anxiety and you've been working with them to make eye contact and look people in the eye and be able to say how they feel. And Mm. you've been working on this, you've been working on this, you've been working on this, right? And they come home and they're like, uh... I didn't talk to anyone today. I sat by myself at lunch. I can't share how I feel. It was the worst. I hate it. So (laughs) being this compassionate parent, okay, Mm -hmm. we're feeling their suffering, right? But also 
we are, let's, let's not deny it. This is hitting us, right? We make that a reflection of ourselves. We are attached to the outcome, not just because we want their experience to be different or enhanced, but because it's a reflection of our own skills and maybe our own failing, or that's the fear. My goodness, why can't I teach this skill to my kids? You know, might be something, or maybe we say something even harsher to ourselves, right. but really we're kicking ourselves. Right. We're kicking ourselves and we're, I don't realize that no matter what I say or try to teach to my, my daughter or my, my child, if I don't understand it, know it and practice it in my own life, I can't really, <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of stress about it and I'm going to, it's going to be a draining experience. It'll, it'll tire me because you're trying to teach something that you might know is going to help them, but you don't practice it in your own life. And you don't take the time to maybe practice it in your own life or think that you can take a pause. Like if I take a pause, everything's going to fail. Everything's going to fall apart. I can't do it. The whole world will fall apart if I stop. But stopping is a real skill. And it is, I was talking about it with a therapist the other day about, you know, in DBT, dialectic behavior therapy, they talk about the stop skill. The stop is, a, is an acronym. It stands for things. But mainly, she said, every time I enter a room, I breathe three deep breaths. Whenever I enter a new surrounding, a new environment, I automatically take three breaths. And I thought, Okay, now you're telling me something that I can actually do. And then, of course, I get up today and I think I'm going to do that. And, and I haven't done it yet. Well, let's do it right now. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Okay. So let's take a deep breath in through our nose. Out through the mouth. Again, in through the nose. Out through the mouth. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. For those of you who are listening, I hope that you joined us in taking those three breaths. I think that it can literally create a shift in your day. And you said something interesting. You said, you know, stop to take a pause because if I, I feel like if I do that, if I don't, if I do that, then everything will fall apart. And I think that stopping and pausing is certainly an essential fundamental skill that's necessary for every single one of us, no matter what is going on. And if you are busy, then it's even more essential for you right, to practice it. Right. I think the other practice is allowing things to fall apart. Because it's very, very difficult, again, as a compassionate parent to detach. We have detachment issues. We have detachment challenges. We are not able to detach both from the experience that our child is having, which kind of boomerangs back to our own feelings, and then detach from this idea that we are somehow failing them. And I think that that's really, really important, right? Because aside from running around and not having a village and doing a million things that creates the depletion and the exhaustion within us, that idea can just exhaust you. How I'm do not you doing enough to help my child. I'm not doing enough to help my child. Well, how do you practice that? How do you practice detachment? I really, truly believe that you can find different avenues, right? So whether this be a 
basic mindfulness practice, whether it be a meditation practice, whether it be a yoga practice, I believe that there are different avenues to practice the detachment. And what you are detaching yourself from, again, is the outcome. So it, so we're not saying, listen, don't care about what happens to your to your child, to your anxious child, right? If they're experiencing anxiety, just don't worry about it. And if you try to help them and it doesn't work, don't worry about it. So we're not saying be stoic or apathetic. I think this is really saying you are accepting the idea, you are detaching from the need to fix it in the moment immediately. You're accepting the idea that your child is going through, they're navigating through a path, the path of their life, and that they're going to be able to do this. And so what mindfulness does, what meditation does, what these different practices do is they create space for you to be able to do that. They also allow you to really begin to observe your own experience. So the practical thing I would suggest is, yes, that. For those of you who, you know, that's not resonant, you know, like, listen, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not a thing that I do. That's okay. There are lots of other pathways. You can practice writing. You can practice journaling. These are also beautiful ways to begin to detach. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so yeah. So, you know, in compassionate parenting, we're talking about being conscious. We're talking about taking a pause. We're talking about how draining it can be and how even Mother Teresa, you said, told her nuns that they needed to take a break because they were involved in such caregiving. I guess... I, you know, this is something years ago, I interviewed a lady named Jane Heller, and she wrote a book, and it was a book for caregivers, and it was about how to take care of yourself as a caregiver. And it was a really interesting idea, and it was, it seemed revolutionary at the time, because no one, no one, especially th- these were people who were dealing with, you know, people who were ill. No one who takes care of someone who's ill is allowed to take a break. You can't, right? Yes, you can. But you can and you have to. And it's thankless a lot of times, right? Like a lot of times we feel as parents that this is something that's thankless as well. Right. And And you have to figure out how to, because what you're modeling for the people around you when you do that is they're picking up that it's okay to take care of yourself sometimes, which is a, which is a very powerful thing to transmit. It's not something that's said. It's something that they see. The other day, I was we were in, we went to a meditation garden um, near San Diego and beautiful place, right, with these benches overlooking the ocean. And I have a picture, and it's my daughter is meditating, sitting on a bench, and I'm on another bench, and we're both meditating. And for like five or ten minutes, the whole world stopped, and I cannot tell you how all of a sudden I was a human being for a few minutes. In other words, I felt like. I had nowhere to go and nowhere to be, and I could just be there. That wow. was a very important thing for me. Um, That's amazing, and I hope you savor that, you know. Yeah, it doesn't take long yeah. to restore yourself to being a human being, but I notice that for me, it does take stopping. A physical stopping, literally. Yes, yes. for me these days. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about the challenges and why compassionate parenting can be so challenging. It's, you know, we talked about basically the exhaustion of feeling compassion for someone of being a caregiver. Um, sometimes it is a thankless job. Uh, we also are not detached 
from the outcome that our kids have when it comes to certain things and challenges that they're going through. And a lot of times we're just depleted because we don't have enough of a village. Um, sometimes there's lack of recognition for our awesomeness, right? So again, going back to not being recognized or really having it be a thankless job. And I think one of the things can be really challenging be is that we are parenting most likely in a different way than we were parented. And so either our extended village, meaning our parents or uncles or aunts or other people around us don't really get what we're doing. They see it as an affront or they see it as permissive oftentimes. Compassionate parenting is often mistaken for mistaken for permissive parenting and having no boundaries and having no discipline, right? And not teaching our children. So I think that can be hard, especially if your partner is not on the same page as you. Hmm. If you are trying to be a compassionate parent, you want to be connected to your child, you practice empathy, you practice positive parenting, you practice compassion, you maybe you do, you know, maybe you are a Magda Gerber fan and you do rye parenting. So all of these are under the umbrella or all connected to compassionate parenting. And maybe the person that you're with, they look at you like, what are you doing? You're letting the kids run wild or you're letting the kids run you. And then mm. then there's a battle. So now not only are you fatigued from the compassion, but you're fatigued from battling someone else and standing in your truth. So those are all the challenges. Well, those <laughs> are a lot. With. That's a lot of challenges. That's a lot of challenges. That's a lot of stuff. So we so you see how how many obstacles there there can be. Now, let's say that I'm a teen and I just came home and we'll do a role play. And I just came home and I, uh, okay, so. I'm just going to introduce this element into the role play because a lot of times when we're doing a role play, Ed and I will start off like this, where one of us will be the kid and the other one will be the parent. But we're going to take this role play inward because this particular role play begins with self-compassion. This That's where everything starts, right? So the root of compassionate parenting and the ability to rejuvenate yourself in that moment is by being compassionate to yourself. Okay, so I will tell you... Let's get ready, people. Quiet on the set. Rolling. All right, so listen, I hate school and I'm never going back to that place. I hate everybody in my class. They're all idiots. And I just can't handle this anymore. I'm not going back. I don't need anything there for my life. I don't want to learn anything from these people. They treat me like crap. I don't want it. That's it. So I'm now, done. done. So basically, whatever Ed said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> not that it doesn't matter what you said, Ed, but the exact mm. challenge doesn't matter. Okay, so now we're going to take it inward. I'm going to be a voice in my head and you be the other voice in my head. You be critical. I'll be compassionate toward myself. Okay. okay. I, I can't, I don't know what to do with this kid. I don't know what to do with this kid. This kid is like, no matter what I do, she's not uh, happy. She's not uh, happy. There's nothing I can do to make her happy. It will always be this way. Ridiculous. I'm through. Like, it seems like my child is having a really hard time. And what she needs from me is to take a deep breath because I know that this can be exhausting, but I know I have the power to hold space for her so that she can express her feelings. Otherwise, I'm just going to shut her down. And she'll never so, be happy. She'll, no matter what I do, she's never going to be happy, no matter what I do. 
I know this is part of my child's experience and I know that she's going to navigate through it. I know it's temporary and I know that it'll probably help make her a more resilient, stronger person. I'm going to be there I just want to go away. I just want to go away. I just want to get out. I want to go away. I want to be free. I don't want to have this over my head all the time. The pressure is too much. Hey, critical voice, I hear you over there, and I know you're just the part of my brain trying to protect me with a huge negativity bias, so I see you, but I'm going to let you float by because that's not what my daughter needs right now. My child needs me to be there for them, and the only way I can do that is to be kind to myself. She's never going to be happy, and you're never going to, I'm never going to be happy, and she's never going to be happy, and that's just the way it is. That's the way this always is. That's the way it always works out. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. No matter what happens, you've never been happy a day in your life. You'll never be happy again. That's a thought based in fear. I'm letting it float by. That's a thought based in fear. I'm letting it float by. That's a thought based in anxiety. I'm letting it float by. That's a thought based on fears I had when I was a kid. I'm letting it float by. I am abundant. I am light. I am a guide for this child. I will be there for her. Here I go. Cut, we got it. Print it. That's a wrap. Lunch, everybody. That's a stick. Okay, that's that's really interesting because that's, uh, I think that approximates some of it. Some of, the, some of the voices, some of the intensity of the voices, some of the different kinds of voices that it can be critical. And you saw what Rini, you heard what Rini did, which was model different ways of acknowledging, responding, and communicating with that part of yourself. Not denying it, not squelching it, not trying to pretend it's not there, not making your, not judging it, And that was really interesting. That's something that people actually can take hold of, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it might sound, obviously it sounds out there, right, to have this conversation with yourself. But the first part of the practice is an observation of your thoughts, an observation of your cognitions. And that actually just takes practice. It's like any practice. It's like playing the piano or getting better at math. It literally takes practice to observe your own thoughts and allow them to float by. And you can practice it at any time. You can do it right now. If you're driving, please be careful. But (laughs) you can pretend like a lot of people will have done some kind of visualization in their life. You know, even if a teacher said to you, close your eyes and imagine the number three, right? You're doing visual math in your head, let's say. So a lot of people understand the idea of visualization. So you can use visualization to visualize your thoughts going by kind of on like a ticker tape floating by above your head. So I would love for you if you're listening to practice this, because once you're practiced, you can actually see that conversation going back and forth in your head. And you can literally acknowledge that critical voice, that inner monster, right? The gremlin, whatever you want to call it and say, hey, I see you're trying to protect me, but you're not my master. I am going to make a choice about the thoughts that I attend to and the actions that I take. And I think that that's where compassionate parenting starts because otherwise we're just reacting. Our kid comes in, they have a challenge and all of those thoughts that were the critical voice, they're reactions. Mm. You know, and I think sometimes, I mean, I always wanted to try this was snapping my fingers that I need some kind of a physical cue. I used to have a teacher that said, turn on your observer, meaning what Rini just said, you're going to observe your thoughts. Yeah, it could be a it could be it could be a music, it could be a simple thing, it could be it could be like that. 
and you just turn it on and you observe without judgment, without any commentary, just what's going on. I'm thinking this. I'm feeling that. This is coming. I'm going to let it go by. I'm not going to try to control it. I'm not going to grab it. I'm not going to judge myself or anybody else. I'm just noticing that this is what's going on right now. And you turn it on. And, you know, it's it's a good exercise. It's a good thing to be able to do even even in a moment. Maybe maybe breath works better for you. You have to figure out what works the best for you. Some people like a mantra, you know, something they can say to themselves, uh, a word, whatever it is, just to keep you connected and to to some compassion for yourself so that you can be compassionate for your child. Yes, absolutely. So for those of you who are listening, who have been feeling alone in this, we want you to know that you're not alone, that you are human. You should allow yourself to be human. You should allow yourself to be seen as human by your kids. Please be compassionate to yourself. Know that we all fall off the compassion train (laughs) often, (laughs) right? I fall off the compassion train myself. So for those of you who think there's some utopian society going on inside my own home with my two little kids, I have a five and a six-year-old. Absolutely not. I lose it. You know, I (laughs) lose it. And then I say to myself, okay, well, that's not how I want to show up to my kids. And I will say that to them right? In different words often, or sometimes I'll just say, that's not how I want to show up. I'm really sorry that I did X, Y, and Z. So know that you're not an imposter. You're human. Stand strong in your convictions, even when others might not understand your methods, even if that other is your partner and be compassionate toward them, right? You're a coach to your kids. You're a guide. And it requires detective work a lot of times because the behavior that your child is showing you often is just a symptom of whatever they're going through. So a lot of times you have to dig. And as a compassionate parent, that can be exhausting. But listen, you're not alone. And if you feel like you're alone, I want you to know that I'm in your tribe. You're not alone. Ed's in your tribe. We're in this together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, We're all, we're all community. We're all, everybody feels that everybody is equal. There's nobody above, there's nobody below. We're all on the same path and we all need reminders and that's why we have each other. All right. Well, you've been listening to Dear Anxiety and uh, this has been Compassionate Parenting and there's certainly a lot more to, a lot more to talk about here. But I just really, we both want to thank you for the comments that you make, for the reviews of the show, for listening, for sending in uh, emails about your lives and about what's going on with you that we want to read and we want to share with our with our community. It is a community. We're all we're all doing these things together. And if you want to send something in, if you want to send us an email, you can send it to. You can send it to. This is a really hard email address, right, guys? Go at gozen.com. <laughs> you can send it to go at gozen.com or you can go to gozen.com forward slash dear anxiety. And there's a form there you can fill out and it will come right to us. We're really excited to hear from you. And as Ed said, thank you so much for the reviews on iTunes and in other places you guys listen to the podcast because that really, really helps us reach more people. And we wanted to let you know there's going to be some exciting stuff coming up pretty soon. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be announcing some new things 
things that are coming to Dear Anxiety, including more actionable ways to use our tips that we talk about on the show and the research-based exercises. So I just wanted to make that pre-announcement announcement. I love that. I'm very excited. I like the pre-pre. I'm excited. Yes, pre-pre-pre. Pre. <laughs> well, it's, well, no matter what your pre-pre is, enjoy your post-post because I will tell you that we love hearing from you. We love, you know, some of the things that people have said, some of the reviews, like Rini was saying, you can listen, you can find us anywhere where podcasts, where you get your podcasts. It could be, it could be Stitcher. It could be Google Play. It could be iTunes at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Dear Anxiety. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. I'm Rini Jane. We will see you compassionate people next time. Bye guys.